This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, the books that are written after Jesus came. And for the benefit of anyone who might be new, typically as a church what we do is we pick one book of the Bible and we go through that book systematically. However, from time to time, we'll do a series where instead of looking at one specific book, we'll kind of look at various topics that the Bible addresses. And that's what we're in right now. We're in a series that we're calling Untwisting the Truth. Untwisting the Truth. A few months ago, I was having a conversation with a neighbor We were talking about spiritual things, and this neighbor said, I just can't believe the Bible, because it says so many repressive and hypocritical things. And I was really grateful that he trusted me enough to be honest with me about how he was feeling. And so I said, thank you for for saying that to me. I appreciate that. Can, Can you explain to me more why that is your perspective? And so he went on to say, well, you know, I think about the book, Leviticus, and I think he meant Leviticus, but I didn't correct him. And, uh, and he said, you know, in that book, like Christians love to quote all those verses about sexual ethics, but that book also says you shouldn't eat bacon and shrimp. And I've seen you eating bacon and shrimp. And so, you know, what's up with that? Um, and, 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 you know, he, he, he kind of, he kind of brought that, this up where there seems to be this double standard where you care about this, but you don't care about this. And so this seems really repressive. Seems like, It's all a bunch of hypocrisy. And you know what? I understand why he would think that. And and I can feel not only what he's saying, but I can actually, because I know him, I can feel the pain behind his words because he has been mistreated due to various things that he's engaged in. And so he raises a really good question. How are we to think about things that we read in the book of Leviticus? How are we to read the Old Testament? Well, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us this, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In Jesus' day, the Old Testament could be split up into those two categories. There was the law, the first five books, the Pentateuch, the books that Moses wrote, and there was the prophets, basically everything else. And Jesus is saying that he didn't come to abolish anything that God inspired to be written in those books. He didn't come to abolish them, to do away with them. But here's the key word. Here's what he came to do. He came to fulfill them. To fulfill means that there was a promise that was made in those books that has now been kept in Jesus. And in the keeping of the promise, what was present in the original promise can now be more clearly seen. Think about it like this. You order something from Amazon. You see it online and you pay for it based on the promise that they will be able to fulfill the order that you made. So you pay for it. And a few days later, well, a few weeks later now, because everything's on back order, but a few, a few weeks you get, you get your package, Lord willing, if it doesn't get stolen off your front step, you get your package, Amazon has now fulfilled the promise that they made. And when you receive that fulfillment, you might have seen what was promised online, you might have seen what that was described as what it looked like. But now that you have it in your hands, you more clearly see what was promised as it has now been fulfilled and you've received it. 
See, in the law, in the prophets, in the Old Testament, God made all kinds of promises. And all those promises are now fulfilled in Jesus. And so what God originally said in the Old Testament does not go away. But now that Jesus has come, he brings a definition and clarity to how we're to see and look back at all the things that God had written. And when Jesus came, he also commissioned his apostles to write down the revelation that he would give them through the Spirit. And then once they all passed away, Scripture is now complete. And so Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. Jesus is the end of God's story. And this ending of him is meant to be the lens through which we go back and look at all of God's story. The way that we are to read the Old Testament is through the lens of the New Testament. It's kind of like The Sixth Sense, if you've ever seen that movie. Once you know the end of that movie, you go back and you watch it, and the details of the movie are all the same. They're all still there, but now you're seeing them in a completely different light because they're interpreted through the ending. And so when we read the New Testament, see that, for example, Jesus it says in the New Testament through the Spirit that, that all food is now permissible. That allows us to go back to the Old Testament and realize more fully what God was doing in giving that law originally. And so now that we see that and see what Jesus now intends for us in that, we now know we can eat bacon to the glory of God. Hallelujah. Amen. Plan on joining some this afternoon. And so when it comes to sexual ethics, well, there's a reason that we're not starting in Leviticus, but there's a reason that we're now in Matthew 19, because Matthew 19 is going to tell us how we should go back and read everything else that we read in the Old Testament. But by starting here in the New Testament, we're not saying that the Old Testament doesn't matter, but what we're saying is that Jesus is the one who gives us the interpretive lens through which we need to go back and see what God says about sex. You follow me? That's why we're in Matthew 19 this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 as we seek to untwist the truth, untwist the truth about sex. That is our intention this morning. Matthew chapter 19. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer, that God bless the preaching of his word. God, we come to you today. Because as we already heard this morning in Psalm 16, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We come to you today, Lord God, because we want to find joy in you. We come to you today because as we sang, in you we are free. Free forever, we're free. And so God, I pray that through your holy inspired word recorded for us in this gospel account of Matthew, Lord, I pray that we'd experience the joy and freedom that you intend for us. And Lord, I pray that by the same Spirit that inspired these words, you would now illuminate these words. You'd make them come alive to our hearts, that as they're preached by the power of your Spirit, a far better sermon might be heard 
than the one is actually prepared so that all of us might say, we met with God today and he took care of us and loved us. Lord, may we experience your love as we hear your word. We praise the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're going to consider two things this morning. We're going to consider what Jesus says about sex. And then we're going to consider how we can live with grace as we stand on the truth of what Jesus says about sex. And if that's a new phrase to you, live with grace as we stand on truth, go back and listen to the sermon from last week. So let's begin by seeing what Jesus says in this text about sex. Our story starts with Jesus being asked a question by the Pharisees. This is not a genuine question. It says that they are trying to test him. They're trying to catch him. They're trying to to trip him up. Ever since chapter 9, the Pharisees, these religious leaders of the Jewish people, they've been trying to take Jesus out. Now, it was not because they're jealous of his popularity, as some people will say. No, they were actually fine with someone becoming popular who taught just like them because that would make all of them look really good. Their issue with Jesus was not his rising popularity. Their issue with Jesus was that he was confronting them. The story turns, they go against Jesus when they realize in Matthew chapter 9 that, oh, Jesus is not acting like people like us should act. And so Matthew chapter 9 They go to his disciples and they accuse Jesus of saying, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? There was no more despised group in ancient Israel than a tax collector. Tax collectors were Jewish people who had been recruited by the Romans to go and extort their fellow Israelites for their hard-earned money. Tax collectors were defrauders, They were bullies. They were like mobsters of the worst kind. And so no respectable person would associate with a tax collector. Sinners is a kind of catch-all phrase to describe people whose, whose character was so well known that all you had to do was look at them to know, oh, they're a sinner. There's something wrong with them. And no good Pharisee would be caught dead eating with tax collectors and sinners. Because in ancient times, to share a meal with someone was considered an act of friendship. You you weren't just sitting down and sharing sharing bread. You were actually experiencing relationship with them. You're affirming them as a person. And so no, no, no good Pharisee would ever do that. And so they're saying, if Jesus is a holy man, if he's supposed to be like us, what is he doing with people like them? But Jesus' whole ministry was a confrontation of this mindset. Because Jesus did not come for those who think they are better than others. He came for those who know their shame and feel their guilt. Jesus did not come to be a life coach to show good people the best way to go. He came to be the Savior to rescue people in their great need. And I hope that what Jesus is accused of is what we will be accused of also. That no one, no matter who they are or what they've done, I hope that they will be so welcomed here that people are like, what is that church doing being friends of people like that? I hope that we're known as a church that is friends of sinners because guess what? We're all sinners and Jesus has been a friend to us. The Pharisees don't like Jesus. And so they're trying to take him out. And here in chapter 19, they ask him a very loaded question. 
Only a short time before, John the baptizer had spoken out against the Jewish king Herod about how he had sinfully divorced one of his wives. And so they're trying to trip Jesus up because you know what happened to John? When he started talking about divorce, he got killed. And so they're like, hey, listen, if we can get Jesus talking about this politically charged topic, maybe we can get him taken out also. So they asked Jesus this question about divorce. Now notice Jesus' response. He does not avoid their question. He actually gives a very clear answer. And here's one of the things we need to understand. His answer was incredibly counter-cultural. It's been said that the biblical teaching on sexuality is just reflecting the culture of that time. But what Jesus is about to unpack here is actually very countercultural to his time. I mean, his own disciples are so shocked by it that in chapter, uh, verse 10 of this chapter, they're like, wait, are, are you sure? Like, really? Like, their minds are blown. But Jesus had no problem going against the culture when the culture went against God's word because he loved people too much to not be honest with them. And in God's word, there is life. And so what does Jesus do? He gives them the word of God. Now notice, how does he do this? He quotes from the Bible, specifically Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Now does Jesus need to quote from the Bible in order to give people the word of God? No. He is the incarnate word of God. Like, hey, what does God think about this? Jesus could have been like, okay, I'll tell you what I think. Right? He didn't need to quote scripture in order to give God's perspective. But he goes back and uses scripture because this is what scripture says. This is a promise from God's word given to us in Isaiah chapter 55. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. The promise of God's word is that God's word is powerful. God's word will accomplish God's purposes. Just like the rain comes down and causes flowers to blossom, so too when God's word comes to a fertile heart, beautiful things grow. And so friends, I think we just need to see what Jesus is doing here. We need to realize we need to follow his example. We should not be scared to bring the Bible into our conversations. In fact, if we're not bringing the Bible into our conversations, we are leaving behind the very power of God that he says can bring beauty from brokenness in people's lives. Listen, a doctor doesn't withhold medicine from a sick patient because they want to meet them where they're at and just try to find common ground with them. No, they give them what they desperately need. Friends, the lost and dying world around this desperately needs God's words of life. May we give it to them. Let's not try to find common ground. Let's give them where there is joy and freedom in Christ. There is nothing that we need more than these words. These are the words of life. Jesus goes to the Bible. But notice, he does not begin by saying, okay, you asked me a question about divorce, but this is what the Bible says about divorce. No, instead, he actually starts by going back to the beginning of creation and talking about God's original intent for marriage. 
Notice what he's doing here. He's getting asked about what God is against. And before he talks about what God is against, he begins by talking about what God is for. And I think the order of that is very crucial. Does anyone remember when you used to have to go get picture negatives developed? Right? I know it's the digital world now, and I'm probably showing my age. But, but like, I remember when you used to have a camera, and you'd pop open the back, and you have to go take the negatives to go get developed at a store, and then, and then you get, you get it back, right? Right? And so, so you take the negatives, but, but what would happen if you just, if you just hold on to the negatives, you're not seeing the full picture. Oh, there's parts of it there. The negatives are important. The negatives help develop the picture. But, but you're not just holding on to the negatives. You want to get the pictures. <laughs> See, friends, when we're thinking about what the Bible teaches about sex, Yes, there are negatives. Yes, there are things that God clearly says he doesn't want us to do. Jesus is going to talk about that in a second. And there are many scriptures that clearly speak about that. But, but we, we need to understand the point of the negative. The point of the negative is to develop the picture. And so all, if all we do is focus on the negatives, what God is saying we can't do, we won't see the beauty of what God says he created marriage to do. We need to see God's intention. That's where Jesus takes us. And so we need to begin this conversation with sex and sexuality, not with speaking about what God is against, but rather speaking about what God is for. Here's what God is for. He says it in verse 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a word-for-word quotation from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. When God made man and woman, It was then God's idea to bring them together. Adam didn't wake up and see Eve and be like, hmm, wonder what we can do together. Like, like, no, like, this was God's idea. God made her. We actually read in Genesis 2 that God brought her to the man. God presented her before him. God officiated the first wedding. Because God had designed these two to be able to come one flesh. There's your purpose for marriage right there. There's the picture. It is unity in the midst of diversity. It is two becoming one. And this oneness certainly means experiencing sexual union. One flesh. There's a physical word purposely being used there. But notice also that the scripture says they are to hold fast. The Hebrew word that's being translated there for hold fast is, is a word for clinging to something. Literally, it means to be cemented together. This is covenantal language. A covenant is an unbreakable promise. It is a binding contract, if you will. And that's what Genesis 2.24, what Jesus is quoting here, that's what he's establishing for marriage. The sexual one flesh relationship is meant to take place here in this holding fast, this marriage covenant. And so being one flesh is not only sexual, but it's a complete union. It's a joining of yourself spiritually, emotionally, socially, legally, economically. It is oneness in every possible way. And in Ephesians chapter 5, we're given the reason for why God created this one flesh relationship to take place within the marriage covenant. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, again quoting from Genesis 2, says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. 
Right? Again, we see a word-for-word quotation in Genesis 2.24, but here the Holy Spirit is revealing through Paul, who wrote this letter, that the reason God created the oneness of marriage is because God wanted to teach us something. He, he wanted to give us an object lesson, if you will. God wants to teach us something about how we, as the church, those who put our faith in Jesus, how we become one with Jesus when we place our faith in Him. See, in marriage, what's mine becomes yours and yours becomes mine. There's no separation between you and me. There's just this one beautiful we. And that's what happens when we place our faith in Jesus. All of who He is becomes now ours. And so the reason you're forgiven of your sins this morning if you placed your faith in Christ is not because God is turning a blind eye to your sins. The reason you're forgiven of your sins, it's not because you've done anything to deserve it, nor because God is turning a blind eye to it, but because Jesus Christ earned your forgiveness on the cross. He paid it all. The reason that we are seen as righteous by God this morning if we placed our faith in Christ, it's not because we are sinless people, but because Jesus and His perfect life have been credited to our account. We're clothed in His righteous robes. The reason we're loved by God the Father forever, and there is nothing that will separate us from His love, Romans chapter 8, is because the Father's love for the Son will never change, and so if we are united to the Son, His love for us will also never change. See, when we are united by faith to Jesus, all of who He is becomes ours. We are one with Him. This is the glorious doctrine <clears throat> excuse me, of our union with Christ. And God created marriage all the way back in Genesis so that when Jesus came, we would have a category for what it means to receive God's blessings through our union with Jesus. He wanted to show us what union looks like. And this is why the Bible makes such a big deal about sexual immorality, which is any kind of sexual thoughts or actions outside of the covenant of marriage. The reason God cares about that so much is because if you mess with the picture, you dishonor the one the picture represents. How would you feel if someone took a pen and defaced a picture of someone you cared about, someone you loved, someone that was precious to you? I think about my sister who several years ago adopted a little girl from India, and for a while all she had was a picture to hold on to of that little girl that they were going to go get. I mean, if someone took that picture and started to mark it up, my brother-in-law would have had a lot of problems with that person. Right? And this is what we do when we use sexual, sec, our sexuality in a way that does not honor the picture that God intends it to bring. See, what we do with our sex life is it's not just about us, but it's really reflecting what we think about God. How much do we want to honor God who's given us this picture of oneness? Author Paul Tripp says it this way, sex is deeply spiritual. Your relationship to your own sexuality and the sexuality of others will always reveal your heart. Your sexual life will always be an expression of what you truly worship. In sex, you're either self-consciously submitting to God or you're setting yourself up as God. How we choose to express our sexuality will show who is really on the throne of our hearts. 
This is why Ephesians chapter 5 says in verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. To covet is to want something differently than what God has given you. And to be an idolater is to worship something other than God, and that is what sexual morality is. Is saying that what God says about sex is not right, I want something else. It's coveting. And it's saying, I have the right to determine my own sexual choices. God needs to stay out of my bedroom. I'm the God of this part of my life. But friends, God is either the Lord of all our lives or he's the Lord of none of our life. There can't be two people on the throne. We're either calling the shots or we're living submitted to him. And so how we choose to express our sexuality will show who we're really worshiping. Is it self or is it God? Well, in heaven, the rule of God reigns. And so what Ephesians 5 is telling us is that anyone who does not want to live under the good of God's rule on earth will receive what they've chosen for all eternity and be allowed to reject God, to be outside of God's kingdom forever, not into heaven. If you don't want to serve God on earth, then you're not going to serve God in heaven. That's the logic of Ephesians 5. And this is the fate that Jesus came by his grace to rescue us from. Because here's the reality. We're all in some way sexually broken people who left unto ourselves would live for the idol of self-worship to our own destruction. You see, after Genesis 2 comes Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve choose to reject God's way, to go their own way. That's what the Bible calls sin, going our way instead of God's way. And the immediate consequence of their sin is that Adam and Eve have to go hide in shame. And when they hide in shame, they separate themselves from relationship with God and they separate themselves from relationship with one another. Their sin brings immediate dysfunction to their one flesh relationship. And for us as parents of these, as children of these first parents, that has now been handed down to each one of us. To my regret, I've not always honored God with my sexuality as God would want me to. And I'm sure the same is true for you also. And this is why we need Jesus. We need Jesus because we don't worship God as we ought. And so we need the forgiveness that Jesus earns for us on his cross. And we need the empowering grace of God to, to continue to grow and change into the people he has made us to be who can live for the joy of honoring God through our obedience to God. And so, friends, the Bible is clear that sex is only meant to take place within the covenant of marriage because it's only the covenant of marriage that can show the oneness that God intends for us to, to have with Christ. To use sex to say anything else, to have sex outside of the covenant of marriage, is to deface and degrade the picture that God has given us. And so God doesn't want us to do that. Not because he's against sex, but because he is for it. And for it being used in the way that he intended it. But look again at who Jesus says are the only people who are to be in a covenant of marriage. To answer the question about divorce, all Jesus would have to do is quote Genesis chapter 2. 
Jesus, should we divorce? No, you're supposed to hold fast to marriage. No divorce. That's all he needed to say. But that's not all he says. He doesn't just quote Genesis 2. He also quotes Genesis 1. Look at verse 4. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus links God making us male and female to how it is to be male and female who are to be united in marriage. Why is he doing this? Well, let's go back to Ephesians 5 and look at verse, starting in verse 25. We read this about marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Notice that the picture that marriage is meant to be of Christ and the church is tied to different genders. The male is meant to reflect Jesus who lovingly lays down his life in self-sacrificial love for the good of his wife. And the wife is meant to reflect the church that receives the love and care of Christ. There is love across difference. Author Rachel Gilson, who was in a same-sex relationship before becoming a Christian, comments on this in her excellent book, Born Again This Way. I actually put a copy out on the book recommendation table. Don't take it. It's my copy, but love for you to look at it, maybe order it on Amazon. It's excellent. She, she says this, lose the male and you lose the picture of Jesus. Lose the female and you lose the picture of the church. The love story of redemption is about both of these parties, so they both must be represented. You might ask, aren't there other kinds of very meaningful differences, such as personality type, which could perform the same function of picturing the difference and unity of Christ and the church? There is something about sex difference which sets it apart from other kinds. It is both large-scale, usually identifiable from just the briefest of glances, and also written into the smallest parts of ourselves. A traumatic brain injury would completely change my personality, but nothing can truly change the reality that I am female. The gospel is about an uncrossable chasm, shockingly bridged. We are made in God's image, yet he is also completely other. Males and females are equally human, yet inescapably different from each other. The metaphor's power is in showing love across a fundamental, primary difference. What she is pointing out is that in order for marriage to be the picture of our union with Christ that it's meant to be, there needs to be differentiation of gender in that marriage. Two men or two women could certainly demonstrate commitment. They could certainly demonstrate love, no, no doubt. 
But being united to Christ is not just about God being committed to us or God loving us. The good news of Jesus is that God is different from us. And yet he has made a way for us to be one with him in Christ. And so in order for sex and marriage to serve the purpose that God created them for, to show what it means to be one with Christ, there needs to be this difference of gender and marriage. And this is why God says that to practice homosexuality is to not acknowledge him. It's not seeing his picture. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 28 says, There women exchange natural relationships, relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, let me just say this to those listening who experience same-sex attraction. While these passages and many others make it abundantly clear that homosexuality is a sin, I want to make sure that you also heard loud and clear the verses I quoted earlier. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And so if you experience homosexual desires and are realizing this morning that the Bible says that is sinful, I will make sure you know that there's not a person in this room who's not also sinful. And so I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to love you. Because God wants to love you. Which doesn't mean that I'll affirm everything about you. I don't want to be affirmed in the sinful parts of my life. I hope people are loving enough to be honest with me about what God says brings life and what will lead to death. Like, I need that in my life. Like, I need to be checked. I want to put my sin to death, and I want to live for God, because as we heard in our call to worship, at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Like, like I want to sell out for the things that the world says will bring me happiness. I want to seek what God says will bring me joy, and I hope the people here will help me do that. And so, I know that speaking about these things can be very challenging to hear. But I also know that God loves us too much to not be honest with us. And so while you might be feeling challenged, I hope you're also feeling loved. God only ever wounds so that he can heal. And we want to be a church of healing. We want to be a church where people can talk honestly and openly about their struggles, no matter what that struggle is. We want to be a church where people can be honest. And when they're honest, they're not shamed for their honesty, but they're instead loved. They're not held at a distance because of their honesty, but instead welcomed with open arms. And through love and through an open heart, we're all encouraged, as we all need to be, to turn from sin and pursue life in alignment with the good way of Jesus. So how can we be this kind of church? How can you be this kind of person in the spaces and places where you live? Well, let's look at our second point. This will be much quicker, but just by way of application. How can we live with grace as we stand on the truth of what Jesus says about sex? I'm going to give you five things. Again, these are all very brief, but hopefully they give you some helpful categories. Number one, we need to repent where needed. We need to repent where needed. I, I think we need to 
begin to consider how to apply this message, not by thinking about how it's meant to inform our conversations with others, but rather to look inward and see where are ways that I've not been faithful to this picture that God's created marriage to be. Where are ways that I have been sexually immoral in my own life? We need to start with repentance. Because this is where Jesus tells us to start. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, hey, before you go talk about the speck of someone else, look at the log in your own eye. Christians, sadly, are often really good speck inspectors. And as they look at everyone else, they're knocking people over with their huge logs. I hope that's not who we are. The first question we should always ask is, what sins do I need to repent of and put to death? And really, I think it's something the Christian church at large needs to ask. Because historically, I think the Christian church has, has rightly been consistent with addressing the sin of homosexuality. But wrongly has not been consistent with talking about the sin of premarital sex, or unbiblical divorce, or pornography, or adultery, or any of the other ways we can, we can be sexually sinful. Those things don't get brought up in the same way. Friends, that's hypocrisy. and needs to be repented of. We're not going to have any kind of credible voice in this conversation if we only talk about one part of it. So we need, this is where we need to start. We need to start by considering where we need to repent. Number two, we need to be aware of where there's been hurt. We need to be aware of where there's been hurt. If I go to hug someone and they've been bruised on their shoulders, they still might need a hug, but it's going to change how I hug them. If there's hurt, we need to be aware of where there's been hurt. And I think we just need to own this and, and accept this, that the Christian culture, sadly, has often engaged in the sin of shaming people who experience homosexual desires. In college, I led a campus ministry and I was several campus ministries on, on, on our campus, and we decided to have this one big outreach where we all got together and, and we're going to you know, do something fun and hopefully have the opportunity to share with people about Jesus. And so we brought in a Christian comedian. I did not book him. I'd never heard of him. Someone else took care of that. But I brought a lot of people to this event. We're sitting down. We're, we're, we're participating in the event. And, you know, the guy was kind of funny. And, uh, but then about halfway through, he started making sex. I mean, he started making, he started, he started making sex. That would have been a whole different kind of event. Just make sure you're paying attention. Um, he started making jokes about homosexuals. And I'm sitting there and I feel responsible because even though I didn't book him, I brought people to this event. And so I decided being the not that mature, but very bold, zeal without knowledge is a good, not a good thing. I stood up in front of lots of people and called this guy out for what he's doing and I stormed out of the room and left. There was probably a better way to handle that situation because it caused this whole scene and there was lots of fallout afterwards and it was just it was a messy way to deal with it. But here's what we need to understand. That happens often. That's our history. And that's hurtful. We wonder why churches aren't safe places for people to come and talk about their homosexual temptations. It's because of crap like that. We need to be aware that there has been hurt. And I'm not saying that, 
That means we shouldn't speak about sexual ethics. But friends, we need to speak with a sensitivity that's aware that perhaps the person we're speaking to has been really hurt before. That shouldn't mute our voice, but it needs to inform how we use our voice. Number three. I'm sorry, I do feel like I just, I should have said crap behind the pulpit. I apologize for that. I was, I was, getting, I was getting emotional in the moment. Thank you for forgiving your pastor. Number three, we welcome anyone. We welcome anyone. Christian poet, author, and speaker, Jackie Hill Perry, who's a really helpful voice in this conversation, I should commend her to you, Jackie Hill Perry. She described this experience when she came to a church for the first time after being committed lesbian for a long time. She walks in and she describes walking in in all her boyish clothes and all these things, very, very clear how she was identifying. She, she, she hadn't had this area of her sanctification worked out yet. This is what she says. I'm at this church, and this woman named Alicia walks up to me. I've been a Christian maybe six days. And Alicia walks up to me and says, hey, what's your name? And I say, Jackie. She kind of nodded her head, squinted a little with her eyes, and repeated, Jackie. That was so minor to her, probably. But to me, it said she's trying to remember my name. And that felt meaningful to me. It seemed like a sincere care for just who I was. Who God had made me to be. The Jackie that God had given to Linda Hill in St. Louis in 1989. That's all she really saw in me. I don't remember what the sermon was about. What brought me back to the church was not anything that was happening in the church service. It was that interaction. It was seeing that there were people there that loved people. I felt like I could return because this was a safe place. Friends, are we willing to welcome anyone as they are? Not as they are in whatever sinful baggage they bring with them, but as they are as human beings made by God and loved by Jesus. I think about how Jesus interacted with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. This woman was living with in adultery. She's by herself because no one else wanted to be with her. And Jesus goes and he speaks with her. In speaking with her, he's honest about her sin. He doesn't turn a blind eye to her stuff. But he affirms her. And he loves her as a person. Can we do that here? Can we welcome and love whoever comes through these doors? And not just welcome here on a Sunday morning, but can we welcome people into our lives? People are longing for relationship and intimacy. Will they find that here? In preparation for this sermon, I came across a story of a man named Tom. Tom was someone who longed for intimacy, but his church made him feel weird for wanting deep friendships. And everyone always seemed so busy. He heard love between guys is gay. So Tom thought, maybe that means I'm gay. And he went and pursued that lifestyle for years because of what he experienced in the church. And his own sinful desires, yes, I'm not excusing that, but it was the church that gave him reason to go down a bad path. 
I wish more churches practiced the words of Jesus when Jesus called his disciples his family. His mother and sister, mother and brothers are at the door. They're like, Jesus, your family's here. He's like, no, 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 my family's in here. He saw those who were his followers as closer to him than even his own mother who birthed him. Sam Albury, who's also a very helpful voice in this conversation, says we need to change our view of friendship and intimacy. In our culture, we have collapsed sex and intimacy into one another, so we can't think of intimacy that is not ultimately sexual in nature. So if we hear previous generations talk about deep friendship, we roll our 21st century eyes and say, oh, they're obviously gay, because for, that to be, for there to be that depth of intimacy, there must have been something sexual going on. That's a very Western way to think, a very recent way to think, and a very unbiblical way to think. And he goes on to talk through the welcome that, that he received at his church and how through coming to a church, he now has more intimacy in his life than he ever did before, even though he is a single man. And I wish that Tom had gone to Sam's church. And I pray that we can be that kind of church. This is why we make a big deal about small groups. This is why we make a big deal about just having people in your home. We have doors in the back of our building because we want to remind you that as we gather as a church here on Sunday, we are then meant to scatter as the church Monday through Saturday, inviting people into our homes. Our homes are not havens for us to hole up and hold people off at bay. There are places of ministry and healing where as we welcome people into our lives, God's love can be known through our love. We have been hardwired for intimacy, and that's why God has made his church to be a family. And so part of how we engage what God says about sex is by not making everything about sex, but learning how to be so welcoming that people can experience intimacy through their relationships here. Number four, we need to have compassion. We need to have compassion. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus meets a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is hiding up in a tree because he wanted to see Jesus but not be seen by Jesus. But Jesus stops the foot of that tree. He calls him down and says, Zacchaeus, I must have dinner at your house tonight. Jesus could have walked past that tree, but he stopped. And he called out Zacchaeus' name. And he didn't identify him with his sin. Hey, you tax collector, come down from there. No, he identified him as a person and called out his name. Hey, Zacchaeus, I want to be with you. And he said, I, I want to go have a meal with you. As we said earlier, having a meal with a tax collector, with, with, having a meal in ancient Israel was was a big deal. It was an affirmation of that person and no one ate with tax collectors. And Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And so Zacchaeus was not someone who would have had people come to his home and break bread. No one wanted to be friends with someone like Zacchaeus. Who knew, knows if he even had the dinnerware to be able to serve dinner to someone like Jesus. Just imagine how that must have felt living by yourself, no one ever coming over, everyone holding you off at a distance. How lonely, how dehumanizing. 
Jesus stopped at Zacchaeus' tree, not with a wagging finger of correction, but with a heart of compassion. And said, Zacchaeus, I want to go to your house. He's saying, Zacchaeus, I want to go meet you in your place of shame. And it was Jesus' compassion that created the space for them to then have a conversation. We aren't told what Jesus said during that dinner conversation, but Jesus must have confronted Zacchaeus about a sinful lifestyle of defrauding people because Zacchaeus responds by giving away all his money to people that he had cheated. Jesus talked to him about how he needed to change. What gave him the space and opportunity to talk to Zacchaeus was because he entered into Zacchaeus' space. He entered into his pain. He had compassion for a shame. It was Christ's compassion that led him to be able to have this conversation. And so I just wonder for us, if someone comes out to us and starts talking to us about homosexuality, or really any kind of sexual immorality, is our first response going to be correction or compassion? Not compassion that is excusing, but compassion that understands that feeling same-sex attraction can often be a very confusing experience. It can be disorienting. It can be stigmatizing. It usually will lead to a loss of certain kind of relationships and even make you a potential victim of hate crimes. And so without excusing sin, my question is, do we have compassion like Jesus for people's pain? I pray that we do. And I pray that it's our compassion that gives us a voice to be able to have conversations. And in those conversations, I want to encourage us not to start with talking about homosexuality. People say, how should I talk to my homosexual friend? Don't talk about their homosexuality, not because you're trying to avoid it, but because there's something more fundamental you need to talk about first. This is our last point where we're closing today. We need to speak about Jesus. We need to speak about Jesus. Listen, friends, before Zacchaeus made a lifestyle change, before he gave all that money to the poor, you know what he says? He calls Jesus Lord. Listen, here's what we need to understand. Before someone's going to care about what Jesus has to say, they need to know the truth of who Jesus is. Philosopher Frederick Nietzsche famously is known for saying, those who hear not the music think the dancer's mad. If you see someone dancing, but you don't hear the music that they're dancing to, you're just going to think they're crazy. But once you hear the music, then you understand why they're making those movements. Friends, Jesus is the music of the Christian life. Nothing makes sense until people hear the beauty of his voice. And so he is the one that we need to be directing people to. He is the one that we need to be speaking about. Wes Hill, there's another author who writes on this subject, says, I say no to homosexuality because I found something better in Jesus. May that be true of any sin that we struggle with. How we fight sin is not just by saying no, but by saying yes to someone better. Friends, are you showing someone who's better? There's this excellent sermon, a 19th century preacher named Thomas Chalmers. The sermon is called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You don't even need to read the sermon. The title just preaches. 
having affection for Jesus is meant to be an expulsive power in our lives. When love for Christ comes in, sin goes out. You want to get more sin out? Get more love of Jesus in. Because guess what? Behavior follows desire. I want to is far more powerful than I have to. And so the greatest power we have in this conversation is to show people why Jesus should be the one they want. And how do we do that? We do that by taking people to the cross. We take people to the cross. Because it's the cross that we're told in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, we have a better message than love is love. Our message is that Jesus is love. And through his arms that were stretched wide on a cross with nails through his hands, they remain stretched wide open in love to anyone who would come to him with faith. This is the message that we need to hear. This is the message that we need to share to the lost and dying world around it, us. Because whether they know it or not, this is what they most truly need. And so friends, I think this is how we live with grace as we stand on the truth of what Jesus says about sex. We seek to be consistent in our own lives and repent where needed. We pursue sensitivity as we're aware of hurt that's been done. We welcome anyone and build deep relationships here as a church. We have compassion for the sinner while not condoning their sin. And we share about Jesus. We bring the conversation back to him again and again and again. May this be what the Lord finds us doing here until he returns. Let's bow our heads in prayer.